Welcome to the Dental Amigos podcast with Dr. Paul Goodman and attorney Rob Montgomery, taking you behind the scenes of the dental business world, all the things you didn't learn in dental school but wish you had. Rob is not a dentist and Paul is not a lawyer, but since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. Learn more about The Dental Amigos at www.thedentalamigos.com. And now, here are The Dental Amigos. This may... uh Certainly, this is our first podcast, but definitely, Paul, not the first time that you and I have talked about dentistry. Yeah. Ten years here, uh, growing up together through the dental world and uh, learned some exciting things about what each other does. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what you do with dentists each day, Rob. Well, we represent dentists. We're a law firm. We represent dentists uh, in all their business needs for the most part. Uh, so we help people buy and sell practices. We help people start up practices with lease reviews, negotiations, employment agreements, partnerships, buy-ins, basically everything that comes up in the dental business world. We don't do malpractice defense, though. We sometimes help with, uh, with sort of pre-litigation issues in that respect. But uh, we're business lawyers that happen to focus on the dental industry. And it's probably about 95% of our clients are dentists. You're here for a good reason, helping dentists at you know some of the most challenging and exciting times of their life. So I'm sure they really appreciate appreciate you guys doing that for them. Well, it's funny you said a few minutes ago, Paul, and I never thought about it this way when you, you compared it to uh, the excitement of delivering a baby, and you said it, and I, when you mentioned that again, you know that what we do get involved with dentists at a very exciting time of their career. I mean, here they are ready to start a practice, buy a practice. And for all these people, every day is like the birth of your child in a sense, uh, and which is awesome for us to be right there with them at that yeah, time. Yeah, I know as a dentist, it's equal, equal parts exciting and nerve-wracking at the same time. You're not sure if you should be doing it, wanting to be doing it, and you go, you know, vacillate back and forth. So you really need somebody kind of who does this on a daily basis to guide you through it because these are definitely the things no one teaches you in dental school, and a lot of times you go through your entire career get, not getting any feedback or expertise in this, this area. Yeah, and, that's, uh, and we enjoy doing it. So recently, Paul, uh, you've started to get into more of the, the dental business transition world. Tell me a little bit about what, uh, what you're doing in that regard. Yeah, th- thanks, Rob. That's, uh, I wear a lot of different hats in the dental world outside of clinical dentistry. One of the things I do is teach with an implant uh, company called Hyacinth. I've met a lot of great people doing that, and one of the student dentist at the course or, you know, private practice dentist had casually mentioned that she uh, sold dental practices part-time and then was moving to Oregon. And I said, well, can I have your part-time job? And surprisingly, she just said, yeah, sure, you, you can have it. And uh, so I looked into that. I'm always up for a new challenge, new things. And I spoke with this. So it's a boutique company. It's uh, located in Pittsburgh, United Dental Brokers of America. And a lot of ways it operates like uh, real estate for dentists looking to sell practice. I've learned a lot about it in the year and a half I've been doing it. You find Sellers, as we all know, are only usually, you know, they're only going to sell their practice once. So identifying when they're going to sell, if they want to sell, is always coaching them through that process. But what I've learned is uh, doing this is that it takes a lot more time than dentists think about in selling a practice. I think selling dentists think that the practice is going to be sold in a quicker time frame, me included. And buyers as well are not totally aware of all the interactions that have to happen to get a practice holder to buy one with dental attorneys like yourself, with banks, with other advisors, accountants. So 
like when you use this example of delivering the baby, uh, we had we we have a three year old and we had a uh, had her had her three years ago right here in Philadelphia. It was just me and my wife in the room with the dental practice sale. There's like think about having ten people in the room at the same time, so that that adds to the. Um, layers of complexity, all trying to get these two people in totally different worlds. You're trying to get the seller on to the next phase of his life. Sometimes sellers are stay on for a period of time in the practice and stay with the, with the uh, buyer. Sometimes they move to Arizona or Florida and the buyer's taking their place. So it's a, it's a big operation to get people to that finish line. So I've enjoyed doing that. And I found out at, like a lot of jobs and dentists were listening. Our patients think doing a 15 minute filling is no big deal. And why does it cost 300 bucks? I realized that selling dental practices, there's a lot more work that goes into it than you think of it as the buyer or seller, and as I thought, buying practices. So that's a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, that dental practices and sales of, and purchases of dental practices are different from other businesses. Um, and when you talk about all the people that are involved and all the moving parts, I think there's a reason why you call a sale of a dental practice a transition. I mean, you don't talk about transitioning a... Uh, a liquor store or a gas station, right? You sell the gas station. Right, in a dental practice, you have to transition it. So there's another component that's a personal kind of goodwill cooperative effort that goes into to buying and selling dental practices that you just don't see in in other uh, in other. I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I say to the when it's my first conversation, whether it's with a seller thinking about selling his practice or with a number of buyers, is a I have this line that, you know, dental practices are people places, they're not pizza places because there's just so many people involved that have to stay with the practice post-sale, post post-transition. The most important people in that is actually the patient. So getting them to stay with the practice is, it's not necessarily a challenge. It's just something that has to be managed on both parties' ends. And it's also, um, when people go to look at a house for sale, they may say to the real estate agent, oh, I don't really like the kitchen, and the real estate agent somehow takes that and brings it back to the you know, person living in the house. They usually will make it sound a little bit nicer than that. I have to do that a lot with these practices, but a lot of times these dentists who are selling their practices, it's the, the best thing they've done in their life. Sometimes they, you know, they, they're so emotionally attached to it, so it's also very, um, it's an emotionally charged situation for them because the buyer who's 30 was gonna say something about the sellers rugs and I'll say you know don't say that when you see the seller we can change the rugs later but sometimes <laughs> dentists just have this reactive personality I'm a dentist too and it's not easy to always think about the other person on the other side and I kind of say to them you're going to be this person one day too hopefully yeah. so think about how you'd like a buyer to present things to you right what are some of the common challenges you find come about in these transitions from a legal aspect well, there's a lot of things obviously uh, and everyone's different which is what makes it fun uh, but I think that you know, one of the, the important things to note is that culturally, the buyer and the seller are on the same page. So when you're talking about a few minutes ago uh, about you know, wanting to come into a house and change the kitchen, change the paint color, make all these changes to a house, you know, a lot of times we'll see where there are buyers that want to buy a practice, but then they want to make all these changes to the practice, which is fine over the course of time. But by the same token, what we're talking about here is still a transition. So if you don't like what you're looking at as a buyer, if your game plan is to totally revamp the whole thing and, and change everything about it, you have to think about what the patients are going to think right. about that. You know, somebody doesn't want to come in one day and say, who's this new guy and, and what happened to the office? Right. You know, well, guess what? I bought it last week and I changed everything. 
you know, will people stay? Yeah, some people will, but others will get kind of spooked by that. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times we, we run into uh, situations where somebody is trying to buy something and it's not what they want it to be. And, you know, it's the classic of putting a, a square peg in a round hole. That's a good point. We had a couple of things I tell uh, buying dentists and what I've learned myself, we required a satellite practice uh, with our family and my brother in 2011, is that you have to give it a good six months because the patients come every six months for their cleaning visits. So even though this practice could be transitioned in January 1st of 2018, somebody out there didn't get a letter, somebody out there never got the call or never got the email or text, and they come sauntering in April expecting to see Dr. Smith, who's now playing golf in Florida, and it's you. So you need to give it a good six months of keeping that culture the same, which is a great point, because that's why patients will be very unsure when they have to see a new face at the dentist. Sometimes they see the staff, so keeping the physical space as much as the same as possible is super, super critical. So I tell buyers, unless it's unsafe, unless you absolutely can't work with it, keep it exactly how this, this guy did. And once they meet you and you, they come for one cleaning visit and know you and your team, then you can start to introduce things. It's, you know, could be something as simple as digital x-rays when they have film-based x-rays. It could be something new with your hygienist. So that's an important point. Yeah, I mean, there's a temptation to, to buy something, I think, and, and make it yours and change right. it. And obviously, people just spend a lot of money. They're excited about what they just bought. And you know, the, the tendency is to like, hey, let's make it mine, and which you should over time, but not overnight. I know you, coach, I know you work with dentists at a lot of different stages. So tell me a little bit about, since you're talking about, a, you know, sometimes dentists are looking for acquisitions. They don't find what they, they like exactly. Tell me a little bit about your work with the startups that you've done for, for when they're starting from scratch and they can do everything the way they want. What, what are the pros and cons of that? Of uh, doing a startup versus a, for a, example, you know you, you you can't find the right number of ops that you want. You don't really right. like the facility. Dentists come with all different personalities, just like any other industry. So some of them you know that are more apt to do a startup, or it fits in their fits with their sort of vision better. And I know you work with teams that do that. Tell me a little bit about some of the, you know, bumps along the road, good points of doing a startup versus an acquisition. Well, you and I have talked about this at length in different times uh, over the years. Yeah, we're big fans of, of ownership, of practice ownership, obviously. You know, it can be a great thing. I mean, I did my startup 22 years ago, uh, and uh, there have been some days that were better than others, yeah. but I've never regretted it. Uh, but when we counsel dentists, I mean, ideally, I like to tell people, you know, there's, not, it doesn't, there's no sort of set better way to go about it. You know, it's not like, you know, oh, transitions are better. Buying a practice is better than doing a startup really depends on what your opportunities are. I mean, a, you know, and some people think, well, I'm going to buy a practice that has good cash flow, and as long as there's cash flow, that's better than doing a yeah. startup and starting from scratch. Not necessarily. You know, a, a good startup is better than a, a bad or mediocre acquisition. And similarly, you know, if you want to do a, a good acquisition, maybe that's better than even a good startup or a right. bad startup. You know, and I think, you know, if you play the hand you're dealt, then that's what's going to lead to success. And, you know, that means, you know, if you come into something saying, I'm just going to buy a practice, I'm not even going to consider uh, doing a startup. And then people that we see, they end up buying a, a three-op practice that's, you know, in a converted house, you know, because it, quote, unquote, has cash flow and that that's better than doing a startup. Well, great. Now you're going to spend lots of dollars and time and marketing and try to build up that practice your reward for doing that will be that you have now outgrown 
that, that practice that you acquired and you'll just be wasting money because there's nowhere to put the patients and the, and the people that work for it. It's an important point because I always, you know, when, when I'm dealing with buyers in this world, you know, you can always buy a practice. It's not easy to unbuy it. You can always start a practice. It's not easy to go the other way. So sometimes, like you, like you just mentioned, if you get involved with an acquisition that's not one that's going to really suit your needs, it could be your family needs, it could be your income needs, you, get, you put a lot of energy into something that doesn't have a good outcome long term. So I think those are important, important things for us to think about. So Paul, uh, now that you are a dentist and a dental broker, tell me what, uh, what has surprised you most about the dental broker world? I, what's really surprised me most, and I, I'm lucky to have had a dad who was a dentist and worked with my brother, so I've been insulated with some of these things, although we did do an acquisition ourselves, or we did a satellite acquisition ourselves, is that there's not really a lot of good information for dentists out there on either end to really find, to prepare themselves for this scenario. There's, there's far better information on how to sell your house and buy a house than there is to how, how to buy or sell a dental practice. So I really find the biggest one is unrealistic expectations on both parties' ends, which are, which are challenging because on these initial conversations, a lot of the wants that a buyer may have, like I want a five operatory practice that does a million dollars a year and the seller wants to stay for a year, and then transition it to me, they're not realistic in certain parts of the country. And it's a lot of it has to do with, I guess I didn't totally realize the, how much, I knew it was always a big part of it, geography is a major issue as to where these dentists want to be. Because a lot of people nowadays, and I don't blame them, I'm 40 years old, want to live in a certain area, have access to things that they like. A lot of times they have spouses that have jobs connected with city type areas. But sometimes the real dental opportunities are outside of these areas and it creates a, a challenge for these families and young couples because what they want and what they call me up that they, they, they are asking for is not really available in the area they are. But then my next question is, um, can you move? And a lot of times I hear, no, we already have bought a house. So one of the things I wanted to add in is, please don't buy a house before you buy a practice for a few reasons. Good point. Yeah, you can always buy a house. They're around all the time to get. Uh, they're fairly simple to buy and sell, but once you have bought one, it's such an emotional investment from your family and you and your children, you're just almost unwilling to do it again, even though you could. So when you sink your roots down and then you say, okay, I want to practice within 15 miles, it's all about timing. And it's no different than looking for a spouse. If no one's available to date or looking to get married, you may be a great candidate to own a practice. Well, you just limit it your options yeah. too. Now all of a sudden you have a very small area or a smaller area where you can look for and a practice. And the other point is, this is a really, the, the sellers, the right word is they're not wishy-washy and I'll probably be the same way. They're not always unsure, totally sure when they want to retire. I'm sure you've had conversations with dentists that have been trying to retire for the past six months, for the past six years. So it's, you know, they're just not ready so if you know, you're know you a 32-year-old in the main line of Philadelphia waiting for this 62-year-old who you think is going to retire, he could stretch it out for another five years. Absolutely. Yeah. I and mean, we have more conversations with the 32-year-old who's on the wrong side of that conversation. Right. You know, where, because uh, we don't represent as many sellers. We do represent sellers, but we do many more uh, uh, rep uh, transactions on behalf of a, a buyer. Um, and so... Uh, we're usually advising the younger dentist who has wanted to buy into the practice for years. And then each year, it's, well, you know, my, my, uh, my daughter's going to graduate school. I'm not ready to retire yet. Or the stock market is down and I'm not, uh, yeah, I can't I mean, sell it, you. It, you can make a million of the, the little cliches. He who has the gold and makes the rules. Or I was talking with your 
nice associate Justin, and I was saying there was a, a Seinfeld episode about do you have hand or not have hand, and you know, the person who has hand is the seller. They own the practice, and I mean, you know, for everyone listening, and, and I think it's important information to have you, they have the control. Many of them are been doing what they've been doing for over 30 years. It's fairly easy for them to be a dentist. They're most likely exhausted by the running of the practice, but they can go in and do the dental work. They're making a few hundred thousand dollars a year and extending it. It's like probably a lot of times like these professional athletes who stay on for a couple more years because they can keep doing it and they can only retire once a lot of times. And probably you've seen sellers retire too early and then have a, an issue trying to get back in the game, so to speak. Oh, definitely. I mean, after you sell your practice, it's hard to be in the game. I and mean, there's yeah. going to be a restrictive covenant. You know, the, the buyer's going to expect you not to be competing. Uh, it makes it a lot more difficult. But, you know, you can't blame sellers at, at a certain level because they're making money. Oh, yeah, and, I, I agree. And you're, you're, you've got that sort of that, those two choices of, hey, do I want to cash out and monetize this asset now? But I'm also making $500,000 right. every year. And so somebody's going to pay me, you know, whatever, $1.2 million. Well, and, you know, in about a year and a half, that's I was just gonna not going to be as good. I was going to say the same thing. And a lot of times it's not quite even as, as, you know, those practices are great ones if someone was making it. But even if they're making $200,000 a year, if their practice is on the market for the same thing, $500,000, in three years they've exceeded what they could have for their what they would have got for the practice and they can still sell their practice. And I, I never forget this too, from my dental school graduation from uh, Collier, the, the father Collier, he said, you know, he said all the time, dentists can only retire if they can answer yes to two questions. Do I have enough money and do I have something else to do? And it's very hard to answer yes for dentists to those questions. So the buyers have to realize it's, it's not an easy, they have to be more flexible with where they can practice. So my, our goal in helping dentists and helping people on both sides and sharing information is that if you're in the buying side of this, you have to expand your geographic flexibility and have conversations with your spouses or girlfriends because you may not be able to figure out how to practice in Long Island or Center City, Philadelphia, even if you want an acquisition because through our brokerage company, some people I don't think are aware, some dentists are aware, there's many practices that sit unsold because I, I have a th say to people, okay, I, we have a practice for you. It does $750,000 a year. You'll make $300,000 a year. This sounds good. Seller's ready to sell and walk away in six months. This sounds good. It's 30 miles outside of Pittsburgh. Oh, that's not so good. So they are totally unwilling to go to those areas. And I'm, I'm not even saying that I blame them because I don't know if I would do that myself. It's just the landscape of practice transitions are are changing rather rapidly. One thing I wanted to ask you about, because I know you do a lot of employment contracts and have helped me personally with those, I see not a lot of part-time jobs out there anymore. Do you do you agree? Do you see people where, where I'm saying that a lot of times people say, I'll, I'll buy into this practice or I'll purchase this practice. I'll be there three days a week, but I have another job two days a week. And I feel like that a good job two days a week, working for somebody 15 miles away, I found those are much harder for buyers to come by these days. Yeah, um, we see them, uh, and maybe a little bit less. I hadn't thought of that before. Um, you know, there, there's, there's definitely, uh, there, there are pitfalls with all of that, though. You know, with, with buyers and when people are looking to buy into a practice and they take part-time jobs, I mean, I think at a certain point you have to be realistic, too, and, and sort of come into those, those situations with your eyes open. You know, if you're going to work part-time for a dentist or a dental practice where the owner is 40 years old and you expect to buy that practice or to have a controlling interest of that practice at some point in the future or in the near future, you're kind of kidding yourself, you yeah. know? And, 
and so there are people that you know, sometimes come to us and say, oh, wow, you know, this is, I signed this employment agreement. They said I was going to be able to buy in, and, and now I'm not able to, or it's been going on for years. And you kind of think, well, what did you expect? You know, right. It's just yeah. not realistic. You know? And it's just like anything. You know, and we hear this, too, even with the transitions. You know, when I have a, a buyer who's going to buy a practice from a relatively young dentist, you know, somebody that's in their late 40s or early 50s, for me, immediately, it's like, wait a second, why? You know, right. why are they selling this practice? Yeah, that's that's a, that, that's an important point you bring up, and I, I wanted to ask you about what you see from um, seller standpoint, because I actually, my job as the broker, and you know, I think brokers sometimes are unfairly painting a negative light, and I've thought of these things before. I was a broker myself. We're really here to put people together and help manage the situation, and. One of the most challenging parts of being a broker, and this has happened to me today after we're done, is that the buyer and seller expect me to know what's going on inside the head of each other. And I'm really there to just transfer the information from each party. And I say that to them, but I start off with right off the bat for a seller is why are you selling this practice and hearing what they have to say, because sometimes they're not even totally ready to sell their practice. And I know we're not even going to have a listing, but when they, depending what their answer is to that question, why are they selling their practice? I've been practicing for 37 years. I'm ready to retire. I'd be happy to stay for six months. You can hear it in their voice. You can hear it in the way they present it. Did some of them say, well, I'd like to sell, bring somebody in, work a little less, go to my grandchild's baseball games. Those are not as good of answers. So what are the things sellers should be cautious about when engaging a broker or thinking about who they're going to hire or working with from what you've seen, good, bad, and indifferent over the years? I think that a seller has to realize that the broker they engage is a reflection of them. And if you go out and find somebody who is not reputable or who doesn't handle themselves in a professional way, that's a reflection on you as the seller. And uh, different people have different styles and different personalities, but you know, very few people like the, the pushy approach. Yeah. And uh, when you have people that uh, that are brokers that are telling buyers and, and giving them ultimatums or deadlines and, and really you know putting their feet to the fire while you know it may seem like that helps to close a deal uh, a lot of times I don't think that's a productive uh, way to go about trying to sell your deal. I, I totally agree. I, I, I wear a different hat and do some buyer coaching sort of like a personal trainer just to help the buyer I go through the deals I'm not involved in selling at all so I'm helping them deal with a broker. And one of the things that's just interesting to me, and sometimes I guess it just goes back to the way the dental industry works, where a lot of these dentists are working in their own practices by themselves for decades with a staff. They're nice, charismatic um, individuals and professionals, but they have been somewhat largely shielded from being in the business world their entire lives. I mean, many of them don't even use email, which is, you know, I'm sure things like that are going to happen to me as I age, but they haven't had to do that. And then they You'll are, always use you. Yeah, right. That's yeah, true. You're, you're cool, yes. Paul. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to try to stay, stay that way. I'm going to be holograms. You'll be a cool yeah, my guy, my Paul. Saying they're, yeah, they're going to send, oh, they're going to send holograms. I'll say, I used to send text messages, send in holograms. But uh, I'm, I'm still in, telling my younger people here about fax machines. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, be, I know. Documents yeah. used to be too long to fax. I was fax. from the firm. It was, a big, it was a big part of the firm, the movie. No one's going to understand that. I love that movie. And it was a, the fact rolled underneath the, underneath, the, underneath the copier and it ruined, you know, uh, Tom Cruise was was ruined. Um, our, our children will look at them and be like, "What's that?" Yeah, that's 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 always think about Seinfeld. That you know, they just the, the technology is not going to hold up, but the jokes will hold up. But people aren't going to understand the, right. the technology in it. Paul, this has been a really good conversation, I think. But I feel like we still have a lot to talk about on the subject. So, what do you say we wrap it up for today and come back next time? 
and uh, talk about one of our favorite subjects, dual representation. Sounds great, Rob. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to another great podcast with The Dental Amigos. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the dental business demystified. If you're looking for more information about today's podcast, you can find it on thedentalamigos.com. If you're looking for Paul, you can find Paul at drpaulgoodman.com. And if you're looking for Rob, you can find him at yourdentallawyer.com. This podcast has been sponsored by Orange Line Media Group helping Dennis and other professionals create content people love. Find out how we can help you take your business to the next level at www.orangelinemg.com. Till next time.